Listeners, readers, welcome to The Foxed Page, where we dive deep into the very best books. You'll come away with a richer understanding of the text at hand, all while learning to read everything a little better. For those of you who are watching the YouTube channel, you might be a little confused about my buddy here, about this statue that is here to my right. And uh, if you are a little confused about what this statue has to do with our title today, then your memory might be uh, slightly fallible, just like mine. We today are going to do um, the most exciting and most fun deep dive into from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. So this is um, maybe not the first time that you've listened to an old favorites here on the Fox page. These are segments I was really excited about from the very beginning of my, uh, my adventures in literature with you all. I really uh, was sort of dead set on um, talking about Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, certainly Frog and Toad. Uh, I'm very excited to talk in the future about where the wild things are. But this is a book, uh, along with Harriet the Spy, that is one of those titles that really stayed with me. And I've begun to have this suspicion that these titles that really stayed with me over the years, they're these books that I just like spent my children's entire like youth foisting upon them. And sadly, they just didn't pick it up. They were not into um, the the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. I couldn't get anyone to read Harriet the Spy. And let's not talk about the Little House books. I mean, they were not into that either. But I really have this feeling now that these books that really spoke to me when I was little, I think that there is a reason why they are remaining in my uh, in my psyche. And there is a reason why I'm wanting to delve into them. I was very pleased when I uh, talked to you all about Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, because I went back and looked at that book. All I had remembered was, um, you know, Margaret getting her period. Or, or actually, I didn't even remember that, which is weird because that's a very important part of the book. But I, um, I remembered, you know, her angsting about not getting her period. And I remembered not knowing what a polo shirt was or an A&P. And it turns out that that book is a really interesting look at religion, it's a look at belonging, it's a look at all sorts of things uh, that I think I appreciated to a certain extent at the time, but certainly appreciate now more uh, in my second reading. And of course, Frog and Toad, what a dream to delve into that, um, that series for all sorts of different reasons. And this uh, book was did not disappoint. Um, the, from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler, in fact, really delivered. So I will tell you in this case that um, I really could only remember two things. One was the pair of kids, and I remembered that they had snuck out, um, they'd run away from home, and they were living in a big museum in New York. I didn't know which one, or I couldn't remember which one. And I remember them sleeping in like a, you know, 14th century bed or something, because I remember thinking that would smell really gross. And in fact, I was correct. They were not that wild about how the bed smelled when they were sleeping in it. Um, I remembered the bed, and I remembered them bathing in the fountain and discovering all of the coins. That was it. That was all I could remember. Um, and I have to say that my uh, my deep dive into this book was so interesting, and it really is reinforcing my new theory that these books that I remembered from my childhood are um, are really rich in some ways that I can't quite put my finger on, but that really uh, are returning some dividends on my deep dives. So. You're going to have to just uh, hold on, hold your horses about the uh, importance of this statue here because we will get to it, but we have lots to talk about before then. For those of you who like an agenda, today we're going to talk very briefly about the context of the book. We're going to do a quick um, bio on E.L. Konigsberg, who is the woman who wrote the book. Then we're going to dive in. We're going to talk about the title. We're going to talk about the opening, and we're going to talk a little bit about the prose. This prose is so solid. E.L. Konigsberg is quite the stylist. I mean, really, really some, some beautiful, beautiful prose in this book that is really like for middle schoolers or even elementary school age kids. Then we're going to dive in a little more uh, to the to the title it's, or to the book itself by looking first at this framing device. So there's this very clear framing device. We'll discuss what that is and how it manifests in this book. Then we'll talk about feminism. We'll talk about New York City and a little bit about humor at that point. Uh, then we're going to talk about the ways in which the book is a little dated. And I actually really enjoyed this part of my uh, my deep dive 
because it made me feel kind of good about uh, how far we have come. And actually, some of it was just very linguistic. And I was very proud of us, as Americans, for having sort of um, settled into some new linguistic and grammatical standards that I think really are, um, you know, I think they're really giving us a good sense. We should give ourselves a pat on the back because we have um, come a long way in terms of really recognizing different sorts of gender differences in our grammar. So good job to all of us. Uh, then we're gonna talk about this really excellent crone energy that I'm seeing in the book. And then finally, we'll talk about the close of the novel. So we're gonna discuss um, the, the context of the novel kind of uh, together with this biography of E.L. Konigsberg. So she was born in 1930 in New York City, in Manhattan, um, and then grew up in small towns in, uh, in Pennsylvania. She was one of three kids. I now can't remember if they were girls or boys or what. I feel like she was one of three girls, but I'm not, I'm not really sure about that. Um, apparently her reading was tolerated. She was a real bookworm um, in, back in her day, but it was not something that her family really promoted. And uh, she was, uh, oh yeah, she was the second of three daughters. I actually have that right here in my notes. Um, she was valedictorian of her high school class and wanted to go on to college and had to work in order to raise the money to do so. She worked as a bookkeeper in a meat processing plant which is really, um, this was a lady who really wanted to get herself to college, which is very laudable, and I'm happy she did because she turned out some amazing prose. Um, and she went to Carnegie Mellon and um, was a chemistry major, which is interesting only because um, some of you know that as I am reading a book that I think I wanna talk about, I have this habit, you can see here on the YouTube channel, of um, writing little notes to myself in the back of the book with page numbers. And one of the weird little notes, I mean, there are probably 10 of them, and one of them is chemistry. So I was definitely noticing um, some big sort of chemistry energy in this book. And um, now I know why. She was a chemistry major. But she then um, went on uh, to have three children herself, a, a son, a daughter, and a son. I said that in a very strange way, but that's what she had. And um, was doing, I think, some teaching when her children were very small. And when the youngest went back to school, she began to write fiction and, and really had uh, some good success. She uh, is one of six people to have won two Newbery medals, which is a very big deal. Um, she, I'm very happy that this book was recognized uh, and, and was celebrated and feted as much as it was at the time because it's really quite a literary accomplishment and it certainly resonated with a lot of children. I want to um, talk very briefly now about some of the things that Konigsberg thought were important. So when she was talking specifically about this book in an interview, she said that the characters are softly comfortable on the outside and solidly uncomfortable on the inside. So she felt like this was something, um, you know, in this case, in this book, we have these two children who have run away from home. They, in fact, do go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. That is where they are staying um, for their, you know, for their jaunt away from home. And uh, they are particularly the older sister is really wrestling with a lot of questions of identity, questions of self-worth, questions of courage, questions of uh, where she fits in her family and in society. And, and she definitely is coming from this. Uh, I think they live in like uh, Greenwich. I think they are literally from Greenwich, Connecticut. So this is a solidly comfortable pair of kids. And yet there really is some discomfort that leads to some really excellent uh, sort of soul searching on the part of this young woman. Um, she also said that the characters in her books want what she wanted, which is they wanted to be the same as everyone else and they wanted to be different from everyone else. They want to be accepted for both. So I love the idea of E.L. Konigsberg being able to sort of step back and sort of encapsulate so articulately what these kids want. Again, these are late elementary. Well, Jamie is younger and uh, Claudia is a little older, but I think she's maybe in fifth grade. I'm sure we will discover that here. Um, but it, it's, it is that time in elementary school where kids do want exactly both of those things. It's a very big deal, wanting to be both unique and also being part of a community. So I really enjoy the way that Konigsberg articulated that because it certainly is a part of uh, Claudia's sort of journey as she's moving through this. She also, Konigsberg, believes that young people 
or she in an interview, someone said this about her characters, that young people are capable knowers of what goes on in their own minds, homes, and the wider world they inhabit. And it is true that there is, it's very much like uh, Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, in the sense that these children are very capable. And, and Claudia, one of the things that they are doing, Claudia in particular, is sort of testing the limits of her competence and her ability to sort of operate in the world on her own. So th there's this sense of, of children as, you know, needing to, to sort of be respected as these autonomous, knowing, intelligent, uh, competent people, which of course makes for a much more interesting story because you have these people uh, who are young, but who are really striking out on this adventure that, that is a, you know, it's a pretty big adventure. Now we're going to dive in a little bit to the text itself. For anyone uh, who has tuned in to this old favorite in order to become a quote unquote better reader, which is, you know, always push against that a little bit. Nobody needs to become a better reader, but I understand wanting to get the most out of what you read. So all you need to do is pay attention. We uh, are going to do that by looking first uh, at the title and at the cover of the book. So um, am I wild about this this sort of illustration here and this, uh, you know, this this picture and sort of the art on the cover? Not not particularly. I'm just going to say it. It doesn't it doesn't really speak to me. Um, it's fine. It's a little busy. It's a little too on the nose for me. Um, I'm not I'm actually not wild about any aspect of this. It's not bad. Um, you know, I'm not a huge fan of the cover art, but I really do like the title. The title's a little wacky, but it's very important. And I think it's a title that people might tend to forget. Sometimes I, I, when I was kind of fishing around with my, with my community and asking if people uh, remembered this book, I would say, do you remember from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler? And people would be like, no. Uh, and then I'd say, you know, the one where the kids run away to the Met and they're like, oh my God, yeah, I loved that when they, you know, blah, blah, blah. So um, I think people, it's, it's a bit of a long-winded title. It's a bit of a convoluted title. But I love it because um, I like the kind of fragmentary aspect of it from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. It's a very sophisticated title. So it's obviously a prepositional phrase, which is kind of interesting. I mean, it's a fragment of something much larger. It also um, almost serves as, you know, when you look at a museum and you have the uh, the the sort of, uh, what do they call that? Like the museum notes or whatever it is. Um, and it'll say like from the collection of blah, blah, blah. In this case, um, we have that idea of a museum plaque, you know, this idea of like from the collection of blah, blah, blah. And in this case, we are from the mixed up files. Uh, and, and I like the idea of the files as being mixed up. I like the idea of mystery and intrigue that comes with that. I also love the idea of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. So in this case, um, you know, it's kind of old school because we have Mrs. Uh, so, you know, this is a woman who is really leaning into the fact that she is a married woman. She is, in fact, much older, which makes sense. Oh, and again, to, I'm not sure if I even said that. The book was published in 1967. So uh, I was born in 69. I mean, this is an old book and presumably it was, uh, you know, written in the years before that. So we're talking about a book that was being created in the mind of this woman in the mid 60s. So there's a lot of liberation that is happening in this book for women um, but I will say that Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler is not it's not really like a, you know a feminist uh, stance here but it is very interesting I like how awkward Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler is I also like the idea of this being files I like the idea of research I like the idea of right right away knowing that this woman Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler is uh, someone who is doing research she's got lots and lots of files enough files for them to be mixed up um, and there's again some sort of mystery or intrigue as to why these files are mixed up we're also just curious about why like what it like it's a very for me I don't remember as a child but as an adult it's actually a very effective title because I'm like wait what what is coming from these files and it, I mean there's a lot of a mystery abounds here mystery abounds I do love the fact that the Newbery Medal uh, is right here on the on the cover. The Caldecott um, Award and the Newbery Medal, I mean, those were just really, really a big deal. Big, big deal. And, uh, you know, continue to be. But certainly the stamp of approval is is very important. And I love the fact that she's just got it right, right up there front and center. Um, we also have E.L. Konigsberg. I like the font and I like the fact that it's all lowercase. It's kind of like the, uh, the Fox Page font, in fact. But um, I also enjoy the fact that her name 
is bigger than the title. Whenever you see a book where the name is bigger than the title, you know that this is someone who is publishing quite prolifically uh, because their name is really sort of what we are trading on, not so much the title. And um, the, the only other title that of a work, well, there are two uh, that I can think of off the top of my head. One is called Jennifer, Hecate. So Hecate is one of the witches, I want to say from like Hamlet or something, but it's, I think, a Shakespearean thing. I think that's right. I mean, it probably actually comes from like classics, like probably comes from Greek or something. Uh, I don't really know, and I'm not going to do the research on that at this moment, but it's about a girl who's new in school, and it's a very sophisticated tile, title for a, uh, for a story about a girl who is new at school. I have not read it, I don't remember it, um, but I was impressed with the title. The other is a book called The View from Saturday or A View from Saturday, and I also really love that. I mean, it's an interesting thing because you're talking about a visual view and then you're talking about a day, which is presumably you know a point in time. So it's this nice melding together of, of sort of vision and also uh, time. It's sort of a, an interesting kind of metaphysical kind of mix here that E.L. Konigsberg is offering up. So I'm giving E.L. Konigsberg kind of an A plus when it comes to uh, titles of her books. I'm not sure that might be kind of a hot take just because I think this is a, a little bit of a cumbersome title, but I, I do really like it. Okay, we're going to open the book now. I'm going to say this too about our friend E.L. Konigsberg. She does a lot of the illustrations for the book herself. I don't remember them as a child. Um, although it was funny when I opened the book, they, they did feel a bit, uh, a bit, you know, familiar to me. And I remember thinking, oh no, oh no, E.L. I don't know. I can't remember what her name is. It's like Evelyn or Eleanor or something. Um, uh, I, might be Elizabeth, but I'm pretty sure it's like something more like Eleanor or Evelyn. Um, the illustrations, I do not love. I do not love the illustrations. And I will say that um, I'm, I'm going to hold up another one here uh, for you. I mean, you know, it's, it's for those of you who are just listening to this, they're kind of very heavy sketches with like black lines. Um, it, I don't know if, if, I don't know what the medium is. It almost looks like pen on paper or something. Um, and they're very specific and meant to look kind of like real life, you know, like these are meant to look like real children sitting on a school bus. Um, I, I don't love the fact that we are meant to like look at them and go, oh, there's Claudia and there's Jamie. Um, and oh, who's this kid in the front with the glasses? And oh, who's this kid with the hat on? Um, there, it, it just... I don't know. I don't. I don't love the idea of of uh, having the vision of these kids supplied to us, and I just don't. I don't find them effective. I don't. I don't love the illustrations. So that's fine though, because uh, I really loved a lot of the rest of the book, despite not loving the illustrations. Okay, now we are going to dive in to the first page of the book. In fact, we have another illustration. That's not great. This is a picture of um, Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. I mean, I think I just skipped over that and thank God my memory is so shitty because I didn't, I like this visually did not stick in my head, which is a good thing. Okay, it says the following on page three. To my lawyer, Saxonberg, I can't say that I enjoyed your last visit. It was obvious that you had too much on your mind to pay any attention to what I was trying to say. Perhaps if you had some interest in this world besides law, taxes, and your grandchildren, you could almost be a fascinating person. Almost. That last visit was the worst bore. I won't risk another dull visit for a while, so I'm having Sheldon, my chauffeur, deliver this account to your home. I've written it to explain certain changes I want made in my last will and testament. You'll understand those changes, and a lot of other things, much better after reading it. I'm sending you a carbon copy. I'll keep the original for my files. I've spent a lot of time on this file. I listened, I investigated, and I fitted all the pieces together like a jigsaw puzzle. It leaves no doubts. Well, Saxonberg, read and discover. Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. So I loved this. Um, I love the beginning of it because it is so forceful. So this is, um, you know, we have this framing device, which is the fact that this entire novel is a, uh, it's a file, 
that we are uh, that we know is coming from Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler, and it is um, a file that she is sending to her lawyer, who is named Saxonberg. And I love that she is so. I mean, she's kind of a badass. Again, we're going to talk about Crone energy later. Crone, Crone is simply kind of like a positive witch, like a. Um, I think everyone knows that word, but it's like an older woman who has a lot of power or who has sort of come into her power in an excellent way. So I love how kind of forceful she is. And, you know, she's writing to a lawyer and presumably she's a widow, although we're not sure of that at this point. Uh, but, but I love how bold she is when she is opening this letter to her lawyer. She says, I can't say that I enjoyed your last visit. I mean, that is so funny. It's so badass. It was obvious that you had too much on your mind to pay attention to what I was trying to say. So, um, you know, she then is, the, the plot is thickening a tiny bit here, and she goes on and says, perhaps if you had some interest in the in this world, besides law, taxes, and your grandchildren, you could almost be a fascinating person. Almost. So again, this is a woman who is very strong, she knows herself, she knows what she likes and dislikes, and um, she's not afraid to tell people about it, even someone in a position of certain authority, like her lawyer. But I also, um, it's really interesting to look at this again after having finished my reread because of this note about the grandchildren. So this is a man she finds is like too, uh, you know, sort of interested or like obs not obsessed, but he's, he's concerned about his grandchildren, interested in them, um, which is important because, spoiler alert, we find out at the very end of the novel that the that the kids who have run away from home, Claudia and Jamie, are in fact the grandchildren of this lawyer. So this is um, one of those things where that's very sort of tidy the way the whole thing is coming full circle. Um, I also really enjoy the fact that she said you could almost be a fascinating person, period, almost, period. So again, this is kind of, you know, she's a tough nut to crack. She's kind of a tough old bird in, in, in the very best of ways. Um, we also have this very satisfying end to this kind of little preface here, which is part of this framing device, which is that she is assuring us that she has figured out this whole thing. Um, she's done a lot of listening. She's done a lot of investigating. So she's sort of underscoring how you come to a conclusion and the fact that she has done these things very clearly. And I love the idea of, of having pieced it together like a jigsaw puzzle and that uh, it leaves no doubts. So as a reader, it's a very satisfying um, sort of incentive to read because you have a sense that you're in very good hands and that she's done a lot of work for you, a lot of legwork, and that it's going to be a very satisfying read because this mystery, uh, which you know she's alluding to here, is going to be all sort of wrapped up and solved at the end of the book with no doubt, which for elementary school kids is very, uh, you know, it's an exciting prospect to have no doubts about something important. Okay, so we dove in a little bit there to the beginning, to this framing device. So we have this first person narrator, which is Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. She has written, she's writing this letter to Saxon and in Saxonburg, sorry. So in Saxonburg, um, you know, she, she addresses him several times throughout the course of the book in these kind of asides that are actually very charming and that have a lot of that same flavor as we have in the very beginning. This idea of her as being um, very strong and knowing her mind and also as having done a lot of very thorough research and being very authoritative herself. So we have that first person narrator who intrudes every once in a while. And we also know that um, we that, that she, essentially Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler, is the narrator of uh, the story that is going to unfold. She is the author of this file that we are given to read. Um, it's the carbon copy, which I love that she sent the carbon copy because, uh, you know, she's keeping the original. Like she's not, it's very valuable and she is not leaving any anything to chance here. So, um, you know, she's really upping the stakes in a way that's very appealing. But we move into the actual, uh, you know, the actual text itself, the file, and it feels more like a third person narrator, which is excellent because it's a much more flexible narrator. Obviously, Mrs. Saxonberg can't know everything. We are told at the beginning that she listened and that she investigated. Um, and toward the end of the book, we know that the children come to her and they tell the story. So she has it on very good authority that all of these things happened, but it's really uh, deft the way that she switches from this framing device, which is in the first person, to the third person. 
So now we're looking at page five, and this is kind of, um, on some level, this is like the real, it's not the real opening, but it's the beginning of the file. And, and I think for maybe your elementary school reader, it sort of feels like the beginning of the story. Claudia knew that she could never pull off the old fashioned kind of running away. That is running away in the heat of anger with a knapsack on her back. She didn't like discomfort, even picnics were untidy and inconvenient, all the insects and the sun melting, the icing on the cupcakes. Therefore, she decided that her leaving home would not be just running from somewhere, but would be a running to somewhere, to a large place, a comfortable place, an indoor place, and preferably a beautiful place. And that's why she decided upon the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. So I love this introduction. Um, in one of the interviews that uh, E.L. Konigsberg gave about the book, she said that the story was born when she took her children on a picnic and everyone was complaining, um, even though the picnic apparently had all of the amenities of home and was like a very luxurious kind of picnic. And her kids were, you know, just put out because it was uncomfortable and presumably there were bugs and it was hot and the icing was melting on the, uh, on the cupcakes. So she apparently said to her children at that point that if they were to run away, she's sure that they would run away to someplace as um, upscale, she didn't use that word, that's my word, um, but someplace as kind of fancy and comfortable as the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which is of course a little tongue in cheek. You can't think of a place that would be sort of more interesting, um, not necessarily more comfortable, but you know, kind of a, a sophisticated place to run away to, certainly. I love the idea that the Metropolitan Museum of Art is a real place. It is so, um, I went there as a kid, but I don't remember, I don't remember kind of linking it to the story, but I do really remember thinking like it, it makes it so possible to think that you could pull something like this off because she is talking about an actual place that exists in New York City. I also love the idea um, that in the beginning of this paragraph, we have Claudia knew that she could never pull off the old fashioned kind of running away. So right from the beginning, we have this idea of Claudia really knowing herself in much the same way, actually, that Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler knows herself. And I love this idea that she is going to have like a very premeditated and a very sort of, um, you know, original and unique kind of running away. And I love that it ends with the word New York City. So E.L. Konigsberg, again, was born in New York City, but grew up uh, in small towns in Pennsylvania. And um, one of the children's books that she went on to write about one of her grandchildren was like, Rebecca Explores Macy's or something like that. So you have a sense that, and that may have even been the last book that she wrote for children. So you have a sense that, um, you know, these are sort of bookends um, and that, that um, she, she really has this draw to New York City. And in fact, New York City figures pretty, uh, pretty seriously in the book. In fact, that is a perfect segue. We're going to talk about New York City now. So I loved the, the sort of details that were provided about New York City, and there are actually lots of them. My memory was that these kids moved into the museum and uh, never moved out. I do think that I remember them trying to kind of evade the, the uh, guards at night and whatnot, um, but, but I don't ever remember them leaving. And in fact, they do leave quite often. They leave to get their meals during the day because they don't have enough money to eat in the, uh, in the cafeteria at the museum or in the cafe or in the upscale restaurant. Um, so, so they do leave, they eat at the automat, which was so interesting. I think they get like a cup of coffee and a turkey sandwich or something. Um, so you have, you have this kind of feeling of what New York City would have felt like in the sort of early to mid 1960s. Um, you have you know, the yellow cabs and you have them walking from uh, Grand Central train station uptown to the Met. So you have all of these different things um, that, are, that are very sort of quintessentially New York that are um, really sort of beautifully evoked throughout. But she has these descriptions too that are very, uh, very sort of um, laudatory of New York City. So on page eight, so relatively early in the book, Claudia, we have this line. Claudia loved the city because it was elegant, it was important and busy, the best place in the world to hide. 
So it is true. I mean, they do a very good job of hiding um, in the museum. We're going to get to the parents. I have to say um, there was very, very little concern. I mean, I think these kids were gone for over a week and they, you know, they were on the covers of several newspapers and, you know, it caused quite a stir. But literally no thought is given on the part of Claudia or really anyone else as to how the parents are feeling about the fact that their children are gone. Um, on page 27, we have a slightly longer kind of meditation on New York City. This is, um, this is when they are, uh, oh, this is when they're still in Greenwich. I mean, sorry, they left Greenwich and they are arriving um, at Grand Central. When they emerged from the train at Grand Central into the underworld of cement and steel that leads to the terminal, Claudia felt that having Jamie there was important. Ah, how well I know those feelings of hot and hollow that come from that dimly lit concrete ramp. And his money and radio were not the only reasons. Manhattan called for the courage of at least two Kincaids. So what I love here, um, you know, Claudia is very happy to have her younger brother, partly because he is a um, he's a real card sharp. This kid has been um, cheating a friend of his and in fact has like $25 or something. And Claudia thought he had like two. So Claudia is very choosy and uh, she has three younger brothers and goes ahead and chooses uh, the wealthiest and, and the one she likes, I think, the best. Uh, but, but certainly I think he's the third of the children, the second, uh, you know, sort of the middle of the three brothers. But I, the part that I really loved here, I mean, I like the idea of, of uh, that final line, Manhattan called for the courage of at least two Kincaids. There's something very adult and very uh, uh, sort of composed and very beautiful about that language there. It's language that I think would flatter an elementary school teacher. I mean, teacher. I mean, I guess a teacher also, but certainly an elementary school child. The idea of called for the courage of at least two Kincaids. It sounds very, um, you know, almost like a proclamation or something. But there's this par parenthetical phrase in the middle. And this is, again, the voice of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. But I love this idea. So this is when the train is coming into Grand Central from Connecticut. And she says, this is, um, again, Mrs. Uh, Basil E. Frankweiler kind of uh, in this parenthetical phrase. Ah, how well I know those feelings of hot and hollow that come from that dimly lit concrete ramp. So this idea of hot and hollow and the dimly lit concrete ramp, there's this real sense of place. It's a very specific reminiscence. This is not a train, this is not an experience that I have had in New York City, but you can you can imagine the thrill and the sense of, of feeling sort of hollow and maybe a little alone, but also um, you know energized and, and a sense of heat and a sense of, I mean, it's a little strange because I feel like the concrete ramp and the dimness is sort of a cool feeling. And yet there is this kind of excitement. Maybe it's the idea of mixed feelings, but the, but the prose is actually very sophisticated in lots of ways. Okay, we're going to look at the final um, of these little uh, snippets about New York City. So um, in, the, in the middle of page 32, she says the following about the museum. Uh, and it's, again, very laudatory in the sense that New York City, you know, she says earlier it's important and it feels important and she's reinforcing it here. Again, this is another one of these uh, parentheticals where we hear Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler's voice. She says, more than a quarter of a million people come to that museum every week. They come from Mankato, Kansas, where they have no museums, and from Paris, France, where they have lots. And they all enter free of charge because that's what the museum is, great and large and wonderful and free to all. And complicated. Complicated enough even for Jamie Kincaid. So this idea that you used to be able to enter the Met free is really such a beautiful thing and it's really too bad, although somewhat understandable, uh, that now it is not free to enter the Met. Again, though, we have this beautiful prose here. This description, um, that's what the museum is, great and large and wonderful and free to all. This is something called polysyndeton, where you include the ands, even though you might just have commas here. It causes the reader to slow down a bit and it adds emphasis to all of these words and it sort of makes them all equal instead of having you kind of rush toward the last word. So we know that the museum, which in many ways becomes sort of a, um, you know, a, a stand-in for the city itself, the city, I mean the museum, is great and large and wonderful and free to all. So it's a really beautiful um, idea about, again, the importance of New York City uh, and, and sort of the greatness of it as a place.
So I'm going to just give you a very brief rundown of the plot in part to jog your memory um, and also just to give you a little context for the talk. So um, you have this young girl, Claudia, who is the oldest of four children. She has three younger brothers and um, she feels a lot of injustice as the older sister uh, and as the only girl because she feels she is made to do a lot of things that her brothers are not allowed to do and that simultaneously she sort of has uh, fewer uh, privileges because she is a girl. So she um, wrangles, Claudia wrangles her middle brother, Jamie, and uh, the two of them in this kind of elaborate ruse uh, go to school one morning and then instead of going to school, they get on a bus and then a train into New York City and they go into the Metropolitan Museum of Art and they spend essentially a week there. And then um, she discovers at the museum this beautiful statue that may or may not have been uh, carved by Michelangelo. So that is why I have this beautiful statue here next to me. This was in fact made by my daughter, not by Michelangelo. Michelangelo. Um, it in fact was made in like, I don't know, I think one afternoon, which I love. Uh, she was taking an AP 3D art class at the time, and I believe uh, the deadline was quickly approaching. And so she put this together, I think, with uh, some paper mache and uh, uh, some spray paint and some balloons. I love it. Look at the profile. Look at the profile of this incredible woman. And look at these boobs and these thighs. And I really love, you can't see them quite as well, I really love these chicken knees. It's got these incredible chicken knees here. So it is not Angel by Michelangelo, but I might argue, in fact, um, that it's cooler. I think it's cooler. I would rather own this. So uh, they become very intrigued about whether or not this, uh, this statue is in fact made by Michelangelo. They do lots and lots of research, which leads them to the fact that the uh, statue might be from the collection of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. They in fact go to her home because they think they can solve uh, this question of whether or not Angel is made by Michelangelo. And she um, has this evening with them. They spend the night at her house. Um, the girl, Claudia, gets to take a bath in this extremely elegant bathtub, which um, I'm surprised I didn't remember that because I really love nothing more than a, a bath. And honestly, it sounded like the craziest bathtub ever. So, um, you know, she they have this evening with her and then the next morning she delivers them to the parents. I'm going to say right now that as a parent myself, even of grown children, I was a little like, dude, what is what are the parents thinking here? I mean, the parents have to be freaking out. You do find out, in fact, that the parents, um, you know, were looking for the children and that the children were in a lot of newspapers. Uh, but, you know, very little attention is paid as to uh, how much suffering the parents are feeling. So having talked about the narrative device a little bit and having talked uh, about New York City, I think that's a very good segue into the idea of feminism in the book. So Claudia, who is Claudia Kincaid, who is our young protagonist, and in many ways is like uh, ba Mrs. Basil Frank Weiler, uh, Claudia is in fact someone who uh, is grappling with lots of different things, mostly sort of how she fits in the world and whether or not she has courage and uh, where she fits in her family and how much independence and how much agency she has. And those are all questions that actually manifest pretty well as real uh, sort of feminist questions. And I loved this right from the start. Again, this is not something that I remember uh, as a child. And yet, you know, growing up in the 70s in California, there was lots of feminism everywhere. And so this probably felt just like as a matter of course. I also had two brothers. Um, at this point, when this book came out, I mean, I was you know, negative two years old when this book came out. But I read it um, as an elementary schooler when I did not yet have a sister. So I had two brothers and I might have felt a lot of injustice just like Claudia felt. But, um, you know, the, the feminist piece of this did not, did not seem unusual to me at all. On page six, though, we have this from Claudia. She had to save enough for train fare and for a few expenses before she could tell Jamie or make final plans. In the meantime, she almost forgot why she was running away but not entirely. Claudia knew that it had to do with injustice. She was the oldest child and the only girl and was subject to a lot of injustice. Perhaps it was because she had to both empty the dishwasher and set the table on the same night while her brothers got out of everything. I mean, 
is that the truth or what? Like, I think there was a lot of like, um, you know, lip service to, to domestic chores being, um, you know, done by all. But for sure, my brother was out mowing the lawn and I was inside uh, setting the table. Although I really would rather have set the table, frankly, than go out and mow the lawn. Also, my brother had terrible allergies. And so he would mow the lawn with swim goggles on, which is just like, so crazy. That's so crazy to me. I'm actually really happy uh, that my parents did not, in fact, make me mow the lawn. Next, we have a slightly wider sense. Um, it's not just the fact that she has to do two chores every evening and her brothers get out of everything. At the bottom of this paragraph on page six, we have a little bit more information about why Claudia is feeling so much injustice. She was bored with simply being straight A's Claudia Kincaid. She was tired of arguing about whose turn it was to choose the Sunday night 7.30 television show of injustice and of the monotony of everything. So I love this, you know, she's the eldest child. And so, um, you know, in my household, the eldest child basically got to choose everything. So the fact that she had to make concessions to her younger siblings really does, um, in my mind, smacks of a little bit of, uh, you know, anti-feminist stuff. The reason I'm sitting like this in kind of this crazy way is that this incredible statue here has this base um, that is, that's right in my way and I don't want to knock anything over. Um, but we have this young girl, she's straight A's Claudia Kincaid. She is, um, you know, really, uh, doing everything right. She's doing lots of chores. Her brothers don't have to. She's making compromises as to the Sunday night television shows. I mean, she's really doing things the right way, but she is not getting, in fact, any credit for that. And I really like this idea of the monotony of everything because Claudia is not, it's not just injustice. And it's not just that she's kind of, you know, doing everything right. It's that she really is yearning for some sort of adventure. And we find out fairly soon, and it becomes very explicit, that she's really looking, um, she wants an adventure and she wants to sort of test her mettle. She wants to kind of test her limits. It's really, um, it, it, it's a very exciting notion for her to go someplace that's important and elegant and adult and uh, exciting and anonymous. And it really, it, I mean, it's a very big deal what she does. It takes a lot of planning, how they're going to bring their laundry to school in their violin cases, and they are going to wash their laundry, you know, first at the laundromat and then later in the pond, not the pond, in the fountain at the museum. So there, a lot of care is being taken and how they're going to evade the guards. By the way, um, E.L. Konigsberg does say later that there is no way you could do this now because the security at the Met is in fact much more robust than it was back in uh, the mid-60s. On this note of courage and on this note of sort of pushing herself and pushing her boundaries, we have this on page seven. Even though Claudia knew that New York City was not far away, she knew that it was a good place to get lost. Her mother's Mahjong Club ladies called it the city. Most of them never ventured there. It was exhausting and it made them nervous. So these are women, um, you know, who are her elders. These are the authority figures who are essentially on the same level as her mother. We, we very, know very little about her parents. I mean, very sort of um, strategically, they are not mentioned really hardly at all. But these Mahjong ladies, her mother's peers, in fact, are made very nervous by the city that she is venturing into. So again, you have this idea underscored of her courage and her wanting to sort of test her mettle, um, which is really an excellent way to, to give us some real feminist um, you know, fodder here without being too heavy handed about it. So one of the feminist sort of angles that I actually liked best about the book is it's not heavy handed. So we, at the beginning, we have this idea of, of sort of the in injustice of, of, uh, you know, the family structure that poor uh, Claudia Kincaid, that straight A's Claudia Kincaid is is suffering. Um, but, but very soon we we have her succeeding in her mission and in fact being very strong and being, uh, you know, very much in charge and being very competent and being very brave in lots of different situations simply by dint of her gender and the fact that she is succeeding and the fact that, you know, her the fact that she's a girl is not really uh, figuring into it is very feminist in lots of ways, you know, is really doing a lot of research on this Renaissance sculpture and figuring out how to survive and evade the guards and, you know, eat well and do all of these different things in New York City, which is no small feat. It's also a very sort of um, important but very subtle 
feminist stance that the woman who is in charge of uh, you know this file, the woman who is writing it, and the woman who uh, that Claudia is sort of joining with at the very end, the fact that that is a woman. So this is not a man who she's going to see at the end, and it very well could have been. So again, that's a very sort of important feminist element, but it's, um, it's not heavy-handed and not a lot is made of it, it just is the fact. And again, this is a woman who is the narrator, so that's giving her a lot of power in the book. She is a woman who is employing uh, the grandfather of these children, Saxonberg, her lawyer. She is someone who is managing an estate. She is someone who has uh, very important dealings with all of these different museums. So she's someone who has a lot of authority, and that is not lost on the reader, even if not a lot is made of it. So it's, I think, kind of in some ways the best type of feminism where it's not polemical, it's not um, heavy-handed, it's not even very overt, but it is in fact very impactful that the women uh, are the ones who are in authority positions here, both Mrs. Frankweiler, whose name is you know on the cover of the book, and then also uh, our young girl Claudia. I also really loved, I mean, this is not quite feminist, but I, but a little bit. I liked this idea of, of um, sort of, of Mrs. Frankweiler as understanding that Claudia in some ways is kind of a girly girl and she's not someone who needs the kind of adventures um, that are sort of prototypical boy adventures. In fact, we have this. So at the very end of the novel, um, Miss Frankwe Mrs. Frankweiler decides that she is going to leave the statue to the children. And Claudia's first thought is like, wait, we should give it to the museum. They really want it. And Mrs. Frankweiler says, no, what will be exciting for you is to have this secret. And you will be, I'm, this is just, it's just dawning on me that this is probably like Snuffleupagus. Is that how, Snuffleupagus? 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 Um, you know, on Sesame Street, remember how he was like, nobody could see him but kids, and then Sesame Street kind of had to like, make him like actually a thing because you're not supposed to have like invisible friends or whatever. But um, in this case, Ms. Fra Mrs. Frank Weiler in 1967 is really saying that having a secret will make you feel special and that she herself has had this secret for a long time because she has a letter of authenticity um, that says, in fact, that this statue is made by Michelangelo. So she is giving the statue to Claudia so that Claudia can have this secret. So we have the following, which again, I think is a nice underscoring of some of the kind of, um, you know, stereotypically feminine things that we see in Claudia. Mrs. Frankweiler is saying to young Jamie, simply because it is a secret, it will enable her to return to Greenwich different. And then she goes on a little bit and says, Claudia doesn't want adventure. She likes baths and feeling comfortable too much for that kind of thing. Secrets are the kind of adventure she needs. Secrets are safe and they do much to make you different on the inside where it counts. And then a little further, hiding in the museum had been a secret, but they weren't permanent. They had to come to an end. Angel wouldn't. Claudia could carry the secret of Angel inside her for 20 years, just as I had. Now she wouldn't have to be a heroine when she returned home except to herself. So again, we have this idea of Claudia, she doesn't need to have a grand adventure, she doesn't need to have more adventures, she doesn't need to um, have lots of, um, you know, fanfare, she doesn't need to make this big donation to the, or, or facilitate this information uh, for the Met. In fact, she's going to have this sort of subtle secret inside of her that will make her feel different and also, um, as E.L. Konigsberg said in the beginning, also kind of the same. You know, she'll get to be herself, she'll be back in Connecticut with her family, and yet she will have this secret that will be very empowering for her. I love the part about baths and being comfortable um, and it's just too good when they're supposed to be going to dinner and you assume that they're very hungry and Claudia instead decides to take a bath. Also, you know, another little feminist gem there because she's like, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to worry about being late to dinner. I just really need to take advantage of this gorgeous bathtub. I think it's black marble and I think, um, I already have forgotten, but I think you walk down into it. So I'm imagining one of those like kind of 60, 70s, like, like black marble, like wall to wall marble. Like I feel like it's a square, huge, like Grecian kind of like bath. It's a heck of a bathtub and Claudia is just drawn to it. So you have this sense of, of um, Ms. Frankweiler, I can't even just say Mrs. every time, Mrs. Frankweiler really understanding what it is that Claudia needs, uh, even though maybe Claudia doesn't have as good an understanding herself. All of this, of course, feeling very feminist to me in a very delicious way.
This is also a perfect segue into the next thing that I wanted to talk about, which is this incredible crone energy that we have throughout. On page 137, she serves the macaroni and cheese, and I think like the when the chef is coming to put it down, or the butler, he says something like, fidèle au fromage or something and the kids are like oh what's that and then he lifts up you know the silver thing and it's macaroni and cheese and she says something about see i'm just a plain old lady under all of these fine trappings so you have this sense of her as being very down to earth despite um all of the money and all of the you know the chauffeurs and this huge estate and the rolls royce and all of this kind of uh you know finery but she also and she's very clear about how she is in control of her uh collection and and also she has this this office that is um uh, you know it startles everyone because people walk in and it's um it has like metal tables it looks like a laboratory and a huge wall that is just a bank of all of these file cabinets so um she she is someone who is really very uh concerned and very competent when it comes to her work all of this research that she's doing and then at the end of the book is when we have um a lot of this kind of uh crone wisdom that they're, they're talking about learning something new every day and it is true that in the museum they went from sort of uh, section to section and they would glom on to these other kid classes um you know who were going through and learning that's how they would eat their lunch often and they would go to the egyptian section and then they would go to the dinosaur section and then they would you know go to all these different places and claudia was very adamant that they learned something new every day so claudia says to mrs uh, frank frank weiler that she needs to learn something new every day and Mrs. Frankenweiler says the following. No, I answered, I don't agree with that. I mean, are we loving that? I, lo I love this energy. She's just like, nope. Mm -mm. So she says, no, I don't agree with that. I think you should learn, of course, and some days you must learn a great deal. But you should also have days when you allow what is already in you to swell up inside of you until it touches everything. And you can feel it inside you. If you never take time out to let that happen, then you just accumulate facts and they begin to rattle around inside of you. You can make noise with them, but never really feel anything with them. It's hollow. It's interesting that we have the word hollow here and we also have that hollow and hot feeling in the beginning. It's just so lovely. Um, I'm going to repeat just the first part at the top there. You should also have days when you allow what is already in you to swell up inside of you until it touches everything so beautiful um she's uh you know she's a, like a mindfulness guru here okay um and then down a little further she says claudia i said patiently when one is 82 years old one doesn't have to learn one new thing every day and one knows that some things are impossible again some awesome crone energy there okay and then we're also going to look um at this description that she has that is really so beautiful um she understands that the children are happy to know, in fact, that they were correct, that Michelangelo was the person who carved angel. And angel, of course, too, you know, angels are, are famously sort of non-gendered, but there is something very feminine looking about this statue that I think is another, uh, another little feminist kind of uh, touch point in the book. And it is very important uh, that Claudia is obsessed with this small statue, um, which is, again, very, you know, sort of at the center of the book we have a mystery about something that 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 seems sort of feminine looking so uh, mrs frank weiler is saying this i could tell that she felt happy happiness is excitement that has found a settling down place but there is always a little corner that keeps flapping around claudia could have kept her doubts to herself but she was an honest child an honorable child. This is the kind of uh, description that we have from the, the kind of prose that we have throughout that is so lovely. Happiness is excitement that has found a settling down place, but there is always a little corner that keeps flapping around. It's just so beautiful. I want to read just one or two more snippets of the prose just because I found it so engaging. On page 56, Jamie looked over at Claudia. He shouldn't have. Claudia looked as satisfied as the bronze statue of the Egyptian cat she was standing near. The only real difference between them was that the cat wore tiny golden earrings and looked a trifle less smug. 
I mean, that is some world-class prose right there. It's so perfect. It tells us so much about Claudia, but it's also just so beautiful and unexpected. This idea that, um, you know, they look exactly like, except the cat looked less smug. There are also some really great prose moments that um, were sort of these like sneaky things that I really, I must have really loved these as a kid because I love them as an adult. So on page 55, um, this is one of the times when the two Kincaid children are sort of, um, you know, glomming on to a class that is visiting that day. The pretty guide, this is, they're talking about Jamie. The pretty guide thought he was part of the class. The teacher thought that he was planted in the audience to pep up the discussion. The class knew that he was an imposter. So I love this because it's kind of like, you know, the kids are getting one over on the adults, but there's also such excellent use of the imposter and it's very subtle and it's just sort of, um, you know, you have this one, two, three kind of structure that's really well done. And then we have this excellent part. I loved these details about sort of how they made all of the, um, all of their adventures inside the museum work. So on page 77, when they are um, about to go to sleep uh, in their, in their bedroom, their bedroom. It's not their bedroom. It's the it's the Metropolitan Museum of Art, but it's the room where their bed is found, and um, the guards are going to come through, and so they're going to hide under the bed. And they say this: they always checked for dust under the bed first, and for once, Claudia's fussiness was not the reason. Reason was the reason. A dustless floor meant that it had been cleaned very recently, and they stood less chance of being caught by a mop. I mean, I still think that's really smart and I am 54. I think when I was, you know, reading this at 10 years old or whatever, I, I was probably very wowed by their, by their reason. But what I really like in terms of the prose is this idea, for once Claudia's fussiness was not the reason, reason was the reason. It's just beautiful repetition. It's bold. It's authoritative. I mean, you really do get a sense on some level that Mrs. Frank Weiler's narrative voice is coming through in all of this. And it's just, it's just uh, so well done. Um, I mentioned earlier that we know that uh, E.L. Konigsberg, in fact, was a chemistry major. And I have to say some of the prose that I marked as like I don't even know, I think I wrote hmm or something in the, uh, yes, I wrote hmm in the marginalia, like an H and lots of M's, because uh, this prose did not sit quite as well with me. This is one of those uh, times when somebody is just using information that is feeling a little gratuitous. So this is on the bottom of page 29. They are walking quickly uh, uptown toward, a, uh, toward the museum. As Claudia's pace slowed down from what she was sure was an accumulation of carbon dioxide in her system, she had not yet learned about muscle fatigue in science class, even though she was in the sixth grade honors class, Jamie's pace quickened. I was like, wait, what, do we need this? I just don't really know that we need this. And then on the very next page, we have this. Claudia needed an argument. Her internal heat, the heat of anger, was cooking that accumulated carbon dioxide. It would soon explode out of her if she didn't give it some vent. So again, I was like, I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting it that, you know, her anger is sort of bubbling up inside of her, but I'm just not really thinking that this whole carbon dioxide extended uh, motif here, extended metaphor is really working for me. So again, this is a little bit of that, of that chemistry major shining through. And here we have another little foray into some um, somewhat awkward kind of chemistry talking, but then it's followed up by some beautiful prose. I'm gonna treat you to both. Maybe she was lightheaded from hunger. Her brain cells were being robbed of vitality, needed oxygen for good growth and, and yawn. I mean, just a little awkward, but it is followed, it, you know, not one sentence later with the following. It had been an unusually busy day, a busy and unusual day. She lay there in the great quiet of the museum next to the warm quiet of her brother and allowed the soft stillness to settle around them, a comforter of quiet. Okay, a comforter of quiet is maybe maybe just like a little too much. I'm not sure we needed that. But I really did, I love the idea of um, the great quiet of the museum next to the warm quiet of her brother. There's a lot of repetition in this book. I'm, I'm hearing it more in my voice as I'm reading it today. But I really like um, the, this repetition. But it's repetition, and the reason why I think it's so effective is because it's sort of a different iteration each time the words repeat. We have the great quiet of the museum and the warm quiet of her brother. And then 
I do like these sibilants here, um, the S sounds, the soft stillness to settle around them. Um, it's kind of like a murmuring, kind of like a shh, you know, like that kind of like a, um, you know, a way that you might soothe a, a child. I'm not really sure that we need a comforter of quiet, but you know, it's not terrible. It's not terrible. Um, so we are now going to move on to talk quickly about um, some of the ways that the book felt dated. And I was so, again, I alluded to this earlier, I was so happy when I got to these places because it seemed so incredibly awkward to me. And I was like, wow, we have come a long way because this just seems downright wrong. So this is um, when the kids are on a bus on, this is page 20 and they're on a, a, the school bus. They're like waiting for the school bus to go from the school to like the bus yard. And then they escape with their violin cases full of clothing to a like a city bus and then to the train and then into the city but um, we have this they lay over their book bags and over their trumpet and violin cases each held his breath for a long time I mean can you imagine each held his breath for a long time do you remember when we used to do that like you, you if it was singular like that because each it calls for a singular verb and it calls for a singular, you know, in this case, possessive pronoun. But it's so weird to have it be the masculine when we are talking about Claudia and Jamie. It's so bizarre. I mean, now you would say each held their breath, which is so nice because we now know that there can be, you know, grammatically singular. It's just such a, it's such a beautiful thing. Um, so it, it, I was just shocked. I like have all these exclamation marks in my marginalia because each held his breath. I was like, who are we talking about? was really great because it was shocking. This is also dated in a way that made me, I really thought this was funny. So um, when they are discussing how they are going to uh, evade the guards who are going around, they decide they're gonna hide in the stalls in the bathrooms. And of course, one is going into the women's room and one is going into the men's room. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure in 19, the mid 60s. Um, so she, Claudia is telling Jamie that not only should he go in there, this was very smart and this impressed me at 54. She said, leave the door a little bit open, which genius, I'm not sure I would have thought of that. And she also tells him to stand up on it, okay? But she will not say this word that is like a little bit of a taboo word for her. Stand on it? Stand on what? Jamie demanded. You know, Claudia insisted, stand on it. You mean stand on the toilet? Jamie needed everything spelled out. I mean, it's so funny to me that Claudia doesn't even want to say the word toilet. And I was just like, thank God we have come. We have come pretty, pretty far, people. We can now say toilet. We can say vagina. I mean, honestly, like vagina, vagina, you know, we can say all these words. We can just say whatever we want to say now. I mean, not all words, but I mean, I really think we have come a long way from the time when a girl who was in sixth grade would be worried about saying the word toilet. Okay, we're moving on um, to see what else is dated in this book. Here's another little snippet that um, helps us see that we have uh, come fairly far. This is on page 61 when we finally have like something about the parents here. So uh, this is when they are looking at something in the paper. The dateline was Greenwich, Connecticut, and it stated that two children of Mr. and Mrs. Stephen C. Kincaid Sr. had been missing since Wednesday. So, I mean, it's just so interesting. Like, again, we've come pretty far from the time when a, a couple would be described as Mr. and Mrs. Stephen C. Kincaid Sr. I mean, partially the formality is striking, but also the fact that the man's name is so uh, prominent and not the woman's, and she's just like a mere Mrs in that sentence is really something. And then down a little bit further, this is just like, you know, uh, this is like feminism 101 here. It went on to describe Claudia as brunette and pretty and Jamie as brunette and brown-eyed. Why, why, why do we have to say that Claudia is pretty and that Jamie is simply brown-eyed? So, um, you know, this stuff is deep, people, it is deep. And I like to think that we have come, uh, maybe not so far in terms of this kind of thing in the way that we describe uh, you know, boys and girls, but I like to think we're, we're making, we're making strides. This uh, last little part here about um, this sort of this dated feeling part, one part of it really cracked me up. The next part was actually sort of alarming. Um, so on page 75, they, they see a chocolate bar that's completely wrapped on the ground. And Claudia says, you better not touch it. It's probably poisoned or filled with marijuana. So you'll eat it and become either dead or a dope addict. 
which is so funny. Like that just seems so funny to me. Although of course, um, I had all those same paranoid thoughts when I was when I was little, um, and you know, in that age, uh, I think there was a lot of suspicion, thanks to Nixon, uh, uh, about drugs and drug use at the time. I mean, part of it that's funny is that it's poisoned or filled with marijuana, which is so. It's funny that she's using that word, which now we're supposed to say cannabis because marijuana is not the thing to say. But then um, you'll become either dead. Or a dope addict. It's just funny. Again, we have this kind of structure where, um, you know, Konigsberg is really like laying out all of these various sort of clear uh, parallels that, that I think are very, um, very bold and in fact, really entertaining to read. But then we get to this next page and it is um, sounding eerily familiar. They're still talking about the candy bar. Someone put it there on purpose. Someone who pushes dope I read once that they feed dope and chocolate to little kids and then the kids become dope addicts. Then these people sell them dope at very high prices, which they just can't help but buy because when you're an addict, you have to get your dope, high prices and all. I mean, that is a bummer. That is a bummer because that is sounding very familiar. It is a little bit funny at the end here when she says, and Jamie, we don't have that kind of money, which is so funny. I mean, she's concerned about being a dope addict and being turned into one by a chocolate bar. But then this idea of, uh, and Jamie, we don't have that kind of money. And maybe you'll have a little better sense of the relative pronouns, which and that. Although I'm gonna just give you full permission now uh, to just feel like you're just making language more efficient. You're just speaking in a way that's more efficient when you just mix those two together. Just go crazy, go bananas, everybody's doing it. We're gonna finally look at the very end of the novel. So um, this is the very, uh, you know, we, we spoke in the beginning about this narrative frame, which are these letters that Mrs. Uh, Basil E. Frankweiler is writing to the children. We end, in fact, with sort of uh, the, the second sort of large installment of this framing device. So we have the letter to Saxonberg, who is her lawyer at the beginning, and then we have at the end. So on page 160, well, Saxonberg, that's why I'm leaving the drawing of Angel to Claudia and Jamie Kincaid, your two lost grandchildren. So it's very satisfying because she's sort of pulling the whole thing together. Um, uh, she says a bunch of different things that are sort of tying up loose ends still at this point, which is delightful. And then in the very end, we have this. Morris reported that a violin case was found in a sarcophagus last week. A trumpet case was found two days later. Morris says that guards who have worked at the museum for a year have seen everything. Those who have worked there for six months have seen half of everything. They once discovered a set of false teeth on the seat of an Etruscan chariot. They sent the children's cases to Lost and Found. They are still there. Full of gray-washed underwear and a cheap transistor radio, no one has claimed them yet. So I love this. I love the idea of ending in the museum. I love the idea of ending um, with this person uh, who is her liaison at the museum. I love the idea that the children's adventure is over. The children are back in Connecticut. The children uh, now are, you know, the, the secret owners of this statue, which is lovely. And you, uh, well, they will be once um, Mrs. Uh, Frankweiler dies. But in the meantime, um, they don't need their trappings anymore. They don't need their violin cases full of clothes and I love the idea of the gray wash closed you can imagine that um, that Claudia was very distraught about not being able to separate their whites and their darks and I think back in that day and age you did not have quite the same color fastness so I'm sure everything did get very gray but so you have this nice little allusion back to this funny moment in the book um, when they're trying to do their laundry with not much success but you have this idea that they don't need these trappings anymore and that they can leave behind this adventure because they have uh, evolved and they have this secret now and they're very satisfied. So I hope you are also satisfied and that this little sort of revisit of um, from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler has been entertaining and interesting and that um, it's, you know, really a sort of taken you on a little trip down memory lane and also maybe, um, you know, given you some ways to think about the ways that we have changed in the last however many, 55 years, and the ways um, in, in which uh, this book is really a gift because we have this real sense of this young woman who is empowered uh, by this older woman who's really something. So I hope you've enjoyed the lecture. Get yourself right back to the Fox page. Find yourself something else to listen to. Happy reading. <laughs>